And so, Lord, we come into your presence, offering up the simple gifts we have, our voices and our lives. This life we share together. May this morning be clear. May it not be confusing. And may we lift your name high above all other names, the name of Jesus. And we all said, amen. Have a seat, everyone. And don't we have the best musicians in all the county? Yeah, man. I tried to sing that note that Ben was singing there in his Nirvana shirt, you know, and it, I could not hit that thing, you know. So uh, anyway, um, yeah, thanks, guys. Really awesome. So uh, we do a little short three-week series here at the end of what's called Ordinary Time. And if you're familiar with the idea that the Christian church for, well, for centuries has followed seven time frames throughout it one year where we teach the life of Jesus. And it's about to end because at Advent and Christmas, you know, we celebrate Jesus' birth. So here we come to the last few weeks of what's called ordinary time. Ordinary time is the time the church calls it. I guess they were having a lack of creativity at the moment just to call it ordinary time. But it's the time of the church. It's us. It's the book of Acts, if you're familiar with the Bible. And that's what we're going to work on today. And the question is, during this time in ordinary time, is what time is it? What time is it? And I don't mean like look at your phone and find out what time it is. I mean what, this is, this is entertaining. That thing is so heavy. Podcast people, they're rolling a massive, huge white marker board onto the platform. So podcast people are like, what's going on? Um, what time are we living in, everyone? What, what era are we in? Because I believe we are living in, you and I, in our one lifetime here, are living in a very interesting time. We are on a time of change. It's a, t- a change culturally, and, but even more so philosophically. And that's what I want to address this morning here as the church calendar wraps up its celebration of this church. Where then is the church in this time? What time is it? I want to suggest that where we're at in time is we are like Paul, the Apostle Paul, standing on the steps of the Areopagus in Athens, debating with the two major philosophies of his time in 48 AD, say, Epicurean and Stoics. Paul is going to debate with them the gospel of Jesus Christ right there in the center of the universe in Athens. And I think we have a picture uh, there it is, the Areopagus right there in Athens. You're, look, you're standing at the Acropolis and looking over where philosophy was debated. Right there in Athens. So that's where Paul was. And I want to suggest that in our time, at this moment, we too are arguing and debating and even battling, so to speak, with two other philosophical worldviews. All right? And that's what I'd like to have us go through this morning. So I can uh, present this with, I gave you a whole bunch of quotes on a half sheet of paper. Uh, I would also recommend or suggest that you get your little golf pencil or whatever writing utensil you brought, or if you want to do it on your sketch pad on your phone or iPad, great. Uh, But just turn it over on the white side and follow along on the illustration that we're going to do, okay? I think it might help you, and you'll be able to walk away with it. So we're going to use the white marker board and some hats. I have hats up here. What's, what's a good message without some hats, right? Garrett, Pastor Garrett says, oh yeah, we all love hats when we're preaching. And I'm going to start off with this one, the funky hat, and it makes me look like a yard gnome. And, uh, 
and you're saying like, hey, what kind of hat is that? I'm not going to wear it the whole time, so you can like, it's okay. What kind of hat is that? And I want to say back, exactly. You don't know what kind of hat this is. Because it's a mystical hat. It's, it's from Sufi mysticism in probably Egypt. I actually don't know. I don't even hardly know. Well, I know some things about Sufi mysticism, but nobody else does. That's going to be our first worldview. Now, these hats and this white marker board here and these names that I have up here all come from a philosopher, a Canadian philosopher who's still living. He's in his 80s named Charles Taylor. And I'm going to say Charles Taylor right now uh, is probably the most influential philosopher out there. Not just Christians are reading him. Everyone's reading him. And I, when I run into professors at universities and so forth, and particularly those in philosophy, I say, Charles Taylor. And they say, oh, yeah, Charles Taylor. And then usually the conversation goes, he's extremely hard to read. So, um, but we're going to make it simple because I have hats and this white marker board. And I gave you a quote right there on your piece of paper where this entire idea comes from. Charles Taylor says, I want to offer another framework to understand three struggles not as a struggle between two protagonists, but rather a three-cornered battle. The first half then comes up, and it is traditionalist. Now, what you want to understand then about traditionalists is that they're, these are the people who believe in a good beyond the material world that you see. These are the people who believe in miracles. These are the ones who believe in angels. They believe in demons. They believe in God. They believe in heaven and hell. They believe there's something beyond. When you go up, when you go down in the ether around us, there's some other force at work. There's something else going on. We are not just uh, sitting here by ourselves in a material world like with a big plastic dome over our head and there's no God beyond it. There's something mystical in the universe, these people believe. And so Christianity then falls under this traditional view. So does Islam. So does Judaism. So does Sufism. World religions, not just philosophies like Confucianism and so forth, but the ones that are are spiritual are traditional. We call it traditional because this was the human view 400 years ago. 4,000 years ago, and we might as well say 40,000 years ago. To be human, these folks say, is to believe in something beyond. You may call it God if you wish. But something transcends normal, ordinary living. Is that you? You're sitting in here, so it's probably a pretty good indicator that you believe this sort of thing, right? So Christianity believes in the resurrection of Jesus and, and the defeat of death. That Jesus rose from the dead. You can't get much more mystical than that. That's a miracle, right? And Jesus didn't just rise as a spirit like a ghost. Jesus rose physically. He had wounds in his hands that were still healing. And in his feet. And yet, he could come and go through rooms. What is that? I don't know. (laughs) But it's something that we don't understand. The next one then are the anti-humanists. So the anti-humanists, and we're going to draw lines between these, so if you're on the back side of the piece of paper, you have more work to do other than just writing down these three terms. The anti-humanists, okay? Who, what hat does the anti-humanists get? Oh, they get the captain's hat. Why the captain's hat? Well, anti-humanists, let's just say this. 
don't get in their way. They are captain and master of their own fate. Nobody gets in their way. They are a world, a nation, a people unto their own individual self inside their skin. They don't really care about you as long as you don't get in their way. I'm painting this in a little bit of a caricature. It's not this harsh. Have you ever heard of Ernest Hemingway's version of the Lord's Prayer? Our nada, who art in nada, nada be thy name, thy kingdom nada, thy will be nada, in nada as it is in nada. It's there on your piece of paper. Nada, for all you Spanish-speaking people, means what? Nothing, right? The anti-humanists don't give a rip about your heaven or your hell. It's all fairy tales to them, and they just as soon you either go away or get over it and get used to the way the world really works. Very, very practical, materialist people. Think of William Ernest Henley's poem quoted by Timothy McVeigh, the bomber of the Oklahoma Federal Building so many years ago. At his um, execution for those murders, he quotes Henley's poem. Here's the last stanza of it. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Anne Rand and her great pronouncement 50, 60 years ago. I came here today to say that I do not recognize anyone's right to one minute of my life. Whoa. Now, I paint these folks in this extreme for the sake of time and simplicity so you kind of get the three terms down. But there are milder versions of this out there today. And it's not nearly as caustic or extreme. But there, you will find the, the hint of the anti-humanist in things like don't tread on me or all of my rights that I have or I'm a sovereign citizen. Like, really? Well, then get off my highways that I'm paying taxes for. Sorry, that's an editorial comment. Um, you know, this is around. Charles Taylor actually, in his book, didn't actually think this was much of a deal in 2007. Charles, how times change. This is a big deal these days. Many other uh, popular atheists then fall into this anti-humanist view as well. Richard Dawkins, uh, Christopher Hitchens, others come to mind. And they really are following a Nietzschean, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche's philosophy from well over 100 years ago, back in the 1880s, 1890s, that says life is all about power and a will to power and that each of us are trying to strive to become the Superman, the Uberman. We are all striving towards becoming our own God. It's Nietzsche who said the famous line, God is dead. Not because he, he had something against God. He just said, like, we have surpassed God. Humanity is at its pinnacle. Amen. Thank you. You can rather be proud of the fact. Uh, so, oh, sorry. Anti-humanists then drift then morally. So us, me, over here in the traditional camp are worried because they, can, they have no moral compass, only their own self. And so they'll begin to drift morally. And if history bears anything out, it drifts towards violence is usually what happens on this one. And um, 
we'll find that also with the secular humanists as well. But over here, things begin to drift because there's no basis for it. There's no sacred text or anything like that. It's, if it feels good, you do it, and that sort of thing's going on. So uh, they end up like uh, old Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, in A Christmas Carol, Dickens' Christmas Carol, where he says, well, if they're going to die from poverty and want and ignorance, then let them get on with it and decrease the surplus population. We'll save money. The other corner then, the third corner of the worldview, are the secular humanists down here. And the secular humanists. Now, the secular humanists are, are um, you're, you're not going to like around here at Lakeland what I'm about to say. Okay, so I'm going to paint in the extreme. I'm going to get in trouble, and I know it, and I'm doing it on purpose. So back off just for a little bit. Um, and I'm going to give them, and here's where I first get in trouble. I'm going to give the secular humanist then this Chairman Mao cap that I got at the Great Wall in China for probably about a dollar. This is, represents communism. And you're like, secular humanists are communists. No, secular humanists are not communists, but they're close. They're close philosophically. Why the Chairman Mao hat? Because like Karl Marx, secular humanism does not believe in a God or anything like that. That's what the word secular means. What they, what they believe in is they don't care to understand the meaning of life. They don't care to find life's purpose. They only care to change the world. They want everyone to be equal. There should not be any disparity as far as race, as far as gender, as far as economic income. None of that should matter. Everyone, it should be a socialist utopia. Okay? This is what secular humanism, that's why I'm wearing the communist hat. Right? Because communism is a step towards uh, the ultimate utopian political economic system. Right? And so what we find then is that in this sort of view, someday all of the world will be at peace. The problem with the secular humanists is that oftentimes it's all about someday. And then they become rather intolerant of those who are not getting someday to hurry up, is what you begin to find. Now, just to really get myself in trouble, I, I wear the, the communist hat on this one because, because they're moral fundamentalists. And the problem is with any sort of idealism, any sort of moral fundamentalism within each one, these guys don't think they're moral, but they have a moral code, right? Certainly the church has a moral code. And the secular humanists, they don't think they have a moral fundamentalism. They think they're like just activists. But there's a deep morality involved in this. And it's highly intolerant of people who do not agree with it. Okay? The problem is, and the reason why it goes communist, is because in the name of idealism and ideal good, people will do tremendously horrible things. There is no question that in human history, the 20th century was the bloodiest and the most violent century in all of recorded time. During my parents' lifetime and many of your lifetime, the 20th century. I put some stats on there for you. The Soviet Union, 62 million deaths, 62 million democide at the hands of the Bolshevik Revolution, Stalin's totalitarian state. People's Republic of China, over 35 million dead during the Great Leap Forward and then the Cultural Revolution. Famine, prison, re-education camps. People were supposed to be trained into the new way of living. We are going to get rid of capitalism. These political and moral idealists outrank the Soviets and, and, and the uh, PRC, the People's Republic of China, both outrank Germany 
and it's 20 million dead combined during World War I and World War II, the Bavarian Empire. Now, secular humanists are deeply offended when I group them in with these butcherers, and so they should be, because I'm painting an extreme and actually from, you know, a century ago. Thank God that communism collapsed under its own weight. Almost. It's almost gone. And thank the Lord that no current secular humanists are advocating mass murderer. They've become more tolerant, so to speak. But misbehave according to the moral order of the secular humanist, and you will find yourself in a type of re-education camp. You will find yourself in cultural sensitivity training. You'll find yourself in gender training. Now, when I say this to my human resource wife, um, I get that look that wives give their husbands. Like, because she's in charge of all this sort of sensitivity training and these sort of court cases and this sort of thing. And she kind of gives me the stink eye. It doesn't look like Chinese re-education camps, but it still has the whole thing that kind of says, don't you know, don't you already realize the way the world's already operating? Don't you know that, that that's immoral? You're doing it wrong? We all know that. It has an assumed morality to it that everyone's supposed to get. Oh, here you go. Um, they snicker at Christianities because uh, you have Virginia Heffernan. There I'm quoting from the L.A. Times, an editorialist uh, quoted in the Kansas City Times. And she sweeps away all religious institutions saying this. Religious institutions, which at their best offer simple workaday instructions on how to be good, now seem to represent ideological communities as much as spiritual ones. In other words, they've gone political. Or what's even more amazing is she doesn't think that Christianity was idealistic. It was an idealism. Like, okay. What's more telling, though, is she briefly just sweeps in the way as just being reduced down, Christianity just being reduced down to, Christi- uh, to moralism. But the real telling part about her comment, and the real reason why I give it to you, is the actual title that she gives her article, her essay, which is uh, An Assault on Our Basic Notion of Right and Wrong. Basic. Everyone knows this is the way it's supposed to be. Don't you get it, you Neanderthals in the church? We've forget, progressed. We've moved on. My morals are innate, instinctual notions of what is right and wrong. All humans will behave the way I do from here on out. Okay. Pretty recent idea, by the way. Religionists are just simple moralists. And our religion is better. I mean, our philosophy is better, is what the secular humanists say. All right. Now, the fun begins, and I use that word uh, cynically. The fun begins when two of the three gang up on the other one. Two of the three are going to gang up on another one. So this is where you get to draw some stuff. Okay? This gets kind of fun at this point. So secular humanists will gang up with anti-humanists. They'll partner up. Secular and anti will gang up on traditionalist. So these two right here, they're going to gang up against the traditionalist. How do they agree to partner up when they are so radically different against the traditionalist? Well, they'll begin, uh, the people of faith, they'll come after the people of faith, and they'll say, you guys are just believing in outdated fairy tales. You guys need to get over yourselves. You guys are dragging the human race down. You need to jettison all of this supernatural mumbo-jumbo and get on with it. Right? 
because you guys are way out of date. The secular humanists will not wait for God's justice. So over here, the secular humanists then are saying, on, from their perspective, they're saying justice right now, right? And these guys are saying like fairy tales, Fairy tales, man. Raising from the dead. <laughs> so they'll say like, well, I don't like you, but we'll go after these guys. Because they're, you know, as it'll say, because, you know, religion is the cause of all war, right? You hear that comment like, I don't know. I think I heard in sociology class that actually haves and have-nots. Your children starving is the cause of all war. Of course, nobody wants to go kill somebody else without God in your back pocket. That's your big stick, right? God told me to kill you. Oh, okay, I guess that's okay. We'll go to war for that. But it's really because your children are hungry. That's typically what it's been. A few cases of nobility, but that's about it. Now, the traditional folk and the secular humanist will team up against the anti-humanist. So the traditionals and the seculars here, these two, they'll team up against the anti-humanist over here how do these two join up forces to each other how will they get together because the anti-humanists are so cold-hearted man these guys are party downers right here they're just living for themselves. they'll shoot you if you walk across their yard i'm painting a caricature of course for the most part the anti-humanists are these heartless selfish consumers these are the ones who believe in, I don't want anybody, any of my tax dollars going to help anybody who can't seem to figure out how to get their act together. Just give me a great big fat army to keep people off our country. That's all I want. That's what these guys are saying. So these two will come in and say, oh yeah, my God-given rights. Such as freedom of religion. Right? And the secular humanists are like, well, I don't really care too much about your freedom of religion. But I really do like freedom. And everyone should be free. Free, 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 free. It's all free. And so these guys don't like that. And so they team up against them. Okay. So the third then team up on this thing is that the traditionalists and the anti-humanists gang up then on the secular humanists, right? So let me see if I can get this right. So traditionalists and the uh, anti-humanists will gang up on this one. Are you guys ahead of me on this now? Are you thinking like, yeah, how's that one work? I think I can figure that one out. So you're beginning to think about it, and you begin to say like, okay, the secular humanists are forcing their liberal moral agenda. It's not always liberal, by the way. Their liberal moral agenda on everybody else, and we don't like it. Stop telling me who I'm supposed to accept and what moral things I'm supposed to do. Get your fundamentalism off my back, is what they'll say. So here there's going to be a whole lot of talk about freedom and about rights and the constitutional and the original intent of the American founders and all this don't tread on me stuff and freedom of religion starts showing up, right? If I got this stuff sort of right. You'll see a lot of crossover in this sort of thing. Okay. You get the kind of picture of what's going on with the three camps out there? Where does this leave us this morning here in church? 
Where does this leave your average Christian? How does this illustration, this concept, these hats help? I hope it helps you make sense of what's going on around you. So that when you read or see a news feed, you actually have a concept of who's speaking. It matters. Moreover, I also would like to propose to you, be careful of who you partner up with. You may be compromising your faith. Or you may actually be doing something wrong that you disagree with, which is intriguing. So it's a way of understanding things. Simple, yes, it is, as all things that are easy to walk around with. They have to be fairly simple. But what we're ultimately after is is that I would like for you to trust in Jesus Christ and know why, what's going on, and not have it watered down or compromised. What time is it? It's time to build the kingdom of heaven here on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus taught us to pray. What does the kingdom look like? I'll just give you a small glimpse, something to walk away with today that plays into this culture that we're living in, this hyper-politicized, this sort of crushed collapse of time and space and other things like that. Here's what I would suggest out of James chapter 1. You must under, This is on your piece of paper. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness, and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. Reduce it down. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. One quick and two slows. Got it? Oh, just join me. Here, let's practice. Ready? Quick to listen, slow to speak. Slow to anger. One more time for those who are a little slow and need to wake up. Quick to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. Got it? This is how we're supposed to walk around. Look, Paul went to the Areopagus and he debated with the Epicureans and the Stoics. He described the birth of Jesus. I mean, he described the death of Jesus and the resurrection. They laughed at him. What's this babbler have to say? But nobody in all of human history, has changed the world more than one man, Jesus Christ. He has brought peace to the world. You say, oh, what about those wars, those crusades? Okay, we'll give you the crusades. Bad idea. What about the Red Cross? What about the abolition of slavery? What about democracy? Right on down the line, all out of the Bible, out of Christian ideas. Jesus saved humanity. From itself. Quick to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. Christian. Walk through your life. Wise. Educated. Read. Pay attention. Discern the way the wind is blowing. Do not be blind. Do not buy into something hook, line, and sinker. Go to the word. Understand Jesus and what he wants you to be. And you too will be all like those first Christians, just like them. And you too will be a part of changing the world.